following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Knowledge and Being. When we discuss religion, we discuss mysticism, occultism, the study of what is hidden from our perception beneath the surface of the senses. Really what we are speaking about is a particular form of experience or or realization of what is inside. And we explain in the Gnostic doctrine precisely what the obstacles are within our psychology that prevent us from perceiving what is real, from knowing what divinity is, which we in this studies denominate the being. And as the founder of our tradition, Samael and Vior, stated, the being is the being, and the reason for the being to be is to be the being himself. And this being is a form of cognizance, perception, or energy, which is beyond the mind, beyond will, beyond the heart and the body. In Buddhism, this is the root cognizance of our inner Buddha. And uh, our inner being is the Buddha, the awakened one, which in Christianity we call Christ. And uh, this light or presence, this force known as divinity inside, this being we seek to discover through spiritual practice, is precisely what we want to know and what any genuine uh, seeker of religion uh, has come to precisely encounter within him or herself. Any person who is entering any religion or spiritual teaching seeks to know God directly, not through theory, not through intellect, not through belief, but through direct perception of what is uh, genuinely real. 
And so we differentiate this type of spiritual understanding as being, cognizance, comprehension, perception of the real, of the divine. Whereas we differentiate this from intellectual knowledge, scholasticism, debate, theory, something that is intellectually fascinating or something to be argued for or against. We're not interested in that type of uh, uh, dynamic. We seek to know God directly. And, of course, in this teaching, we study many books, many scriptures to help us understand what is this root perception in ourselves, known as the consciousness that is part of our inner God, our inner Buddha, our inner flame. But, of course, we always balance the study with practice. And in this teaching, we highly emphasize the need for practice and the need for effective methods to transform our mind and to experience divinity. So, in this lecture, we're precisely going to discuss this point. What is divinity and what is the type of knowledge that we need to know divinity directly? In this first uh, graphic, we have a famous Tibetan Buddhist saint, named Milarepa, who uh, was quite a remarkable figure because he actually was a uh, uh, criminal. Welcome. He was uh, someone who committed many crimes and had, in fact, occurred many deaths as a result of his uh, criminal behavior. But he realized precisely his position and his culpability and, and his responsibility for his actions. And he actually became one of the greatest Tibetan Buddhist saints, uh, which uh, Mahayana Buddhism venerates and which we uh, proudly study. So Milarepa gave a very beautiful teaching about this demarcation between knowledge and divinity, the being. Just as fog is dispelled by the strength of the sun and is dispelled no other way, preconception or, self, or intellectual knowledge is cleared by the strength of realization. There's no other way of clearing preconceptions. Experience them as baseless dreams. Experience them as ephemeral bubbles. Experience them as insubstantial rainbows. Experience them as indivisible space. This is from Drinking the Mountain Stream, Songs of Tibet's Beloved Saint. So if we genuinely want to know what God is inside, to experience what divinity is, we need to abandon a lot of our own preconceptions about who we are as an individual. And of course, this is a very challenging and difficult step to ask oneself and confront oneself by asking this question. Who are we, really? Who is God inside of myself? What is divinity? How to experience my own inner divinity inside? When we ask this question, uh, comes to my mind a very famous Sufi teaching, which is a from the mysticism of Islam. He who knows himself knows his Lord. 
and the Greek maximum, the Temple of Delphi in ancient Greece, taught, man know thyself and you will know the universe and the gods. Homo nocite ipsum in Latin, or in a Greek, excuse me. And so we have to really confront this question in ourselves. If we do not know God inside, our, who is our inner divinity, our inner being? The question is, do we really know ourselves in depth? And this is precisely the, the maxim or ultimatum that any college of initiation or schools of mysteries have taught to ask this question. Who are we and do we know divinity? And if we're honest and really examine the abundance of spiritual literature, genuine literature from different religions, whether from uh, Hinduism as the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Buddhism, different sutras and tantras, the teachings of Kabbalah, such as the Zohar, the Talmud, um, the Torah, or the Tarot, the Egyptian mystical teachings of uh, Egypt. Likewise, in the Middle East, as the Quran, and many different scriptures that have all taught an integral science by which we can unite with divinity. And so the thing is to ask ourselves what we know, genuinely. Because if we don't know our, who is our inner being, our divinity inside, religions have pointed out that if we do not know our being, it means we don't fully know ourselves. And this is the brave step we need to take when seeking genuine spirituality, genuine realization of divinity. To ask ourselves, what is it we really know? And to find what is valid and what is unvalid. So we find here Milarepa, uh, we chose this image because he's listening actively. He is, being a great saint, is demonstrating his humility by the fact that he is learning. He learns from all human beings, all sentient beings, without distinction. And even though he attained great realization, still he, he, he had an understanding that upon great heights of spiritual knowledge, one has to be humble and to learn from all beings. And so we should imitate his example. We should attempt to approach religion from the, from the honest perspective of, and understanding that we, ju- we don't know and that we seek to know. And that uh, as the Gospels teach us, uh, ask and it shall be opened unto you. Knock on the door and it will be opened. Seek and you shall find. So we want to understand precisely what prevents us from knowing divinity, whether uh, given the name of Christ, Allah, Buddha, Ahura Mazda amongst the Zoroastrians, many names for divinity. We need to understand precisely what in us is... uh, uh, preventing our perception of that divinity. So we talk a lot about in these studies the difference between concept and reality, the difference between knowledge and being. So reality is the being, is that divine force inside us that we can actualize in this instant if we learn to pay attention as a psyche. And then concept is our, our beliefs, our habits, our ideas about precisely what religion teaches or what we experience more importantly. So in this image we have, uh, we chose uh, Rene Descartes, famous uh, French philosopher who's, who's very famous for stating, I think, therefore I am. And we politely disagree with Descartes by explaining that to think is not to be. 
And the way to understand that difference is that thinking is a type of uh, process in our psyche which we typically identify with as being our identity. But if we learn to observe ourselves and our totality, understanding that our thoughts change by observing our emotions change, by looking at our body, we find that sensations come and go. These things fluctuate. These are not permanent. So where is the inherent intrinsic nature of this perception that we have? This is a very famous Buddhist teaching, which we study. We find that these these things are impermanent. Therefore, where is the genuine identity in our very moment? So thinking is a process that really is... uh, Mechanical, we could say. The mind can store information, concepts, have theories about the nature of language, philosophy, the nature of reality, but that thought or that thinking, that concept is not the reality itself. It is merely a projection from the mind that attempts to label information. So we experience phenomena, but then we think and label that phenomena. That's precisely the difference between uh, our concepts and the reality. And this is the big question we need to ask. What is the reality that we are experiencing in the moment? In these studies, we talk about mindfulness and self-observation. To observe one's body, one's mind, one's heart. To be aware of this, uh, to have the understanding that intrinsically we are not our thoughts. We are not sensations of the body. We are not the emotions. But we are a type of quality of consciousness, which is beyond that. And that this consciousness can experience a dynamic of emotions and sentiment which is superior, divine, which we seek to access through practice. So Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. So what does it mean to be, to, be, to say I am? Jesus of Nazareth, who was the, the head of the Gnostic Church, he explained, or the Christ forced through him explained, that uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or in Hebrew and Kabbalah, Eheye Asher Eheye, I am that I am. Which is what Moses uh, heard from the burning bush, the tree of life on Mount Sinai. So when Jesus said, I am, that really divinity in him said, I am, wasn't the physical personality of Jesus, when people worship. But instead, uh, it's divinity inside that says, I am. The being, the presence that is eternal. Our thoughts may change, our appetites, our habits, our beliefs, our theories, our experience of life may change, but God does not change. And that force is inside, internal, that we can experience. And that says, I am. Eheye, in Hebrew. So Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. And the thing is, God does not think. God knows. So God is not some anthropomorphic figure in the clouds, but is a force an intelligence, a divine presence in our heart, in our very core of our consciousness, which we can experience if we learn the method. So God does not need to think. He is. And uh, the very famous saying of Jesus of Nazareth when he was persecuted by the Pharisees in his time, the people who believe in, they know about spirituality but don't, they asked him, are you the Christ? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. So Abraham, if you're not familiar with Judaism, was the founder of that tradition. And the people who were persecuting Jesus of Nazareth were very attached to their tradition. 
and did not want to see what is revolutionary or new. And so therefore he was crucified. So people have concepts about the nature of divinity, about being, but the reality is something we have to experience. And it is beyond thought. Therefore to think is not to be. To be is to be aware of thought, how it flows and changes and fluctuates, to be aware of uh, our emotional states and the experience of life as sensation, as they fluctuate. So I'd like to quote for you a very famous, uh, in this uh, tradition, the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition, his name is Samael and Vior. He states in his book, The Great Rebellion, precisely this dynamic between concept and reality. Who or what can guarantee that concept and reality are exactly the same thing? Concept is one thing, and reality is another. There is a tendency to overestimate our own concepts. It is almost impossible for reality to equal concept. Nevertheless, the mind, hypnotized by its very own concepts, always presumes that concept and reality are the same. Any psychological process that is correctly structured using precise logic is opposed by a different one, strongly developed with similar or superior logic. Then what? So if any of you have ever uh, studied philosophy, particularly uh, the teachings of Immanuel Kant, he talked about in his doctrine about the nature of knowledge and concept, known as the antinomies of reason. Basically, you can have two uh, arguments of equally plausible uh, evidence and di- uh, um, dissertation, different thoughts, beliefs, that are equally plausible but contradictory, such as I believe in God or I don't believe in God. And one can provide evidence either way. It can be convincing depending on the, the articulation of thought. So these are contradictions or paradoxes. And the point that Immanuel Kant was emphasizing was that in his contribution to Western philosophy was that the intellect cannot know the truth. Reading cannot show us truth. We can have ideas. We can learn methods. We need to educate our mind. This is necessary. But the actual experience or cognizance of what the divine is comes about as a result of spiritual practice. So we can have an idea in our mind about why one religion is better than another and someone of another religion can have the same belief about their tradition and there's conflict and this is why the world is such a mess is in the state that it's in due to this precisely people deifying the intellect people uh, stating that the intellect can know the truth and that we are the possessors of the truth and that everyone else in the world doesn't know and this is really sad because we teach a gnosis that all religions are universal and that teach the same science with different language and different symbols in accordance with the culture of the time in which it was disseminated. So Samael and Vior emphasizes this point. Two severely disciplined minds confined by ironclad intellectual structures argue with one another. They debate and dispute over this or that fact of reality. Each believes its own concept to, to be exact and the other to be false. Which is right? Who can honestly guarantee either case? Which one shows that concept and reality are the same? Unquestionably, each mind is a world of its own. In each and every one of us lies a kind of pretentious dictatorial dogmatism that wants to make us believe in absolute, the, the absolute equality of concept and reality. So we all have this tendency to want to affirm our ideas about uh, work or sports or politics 
beliefs, economics, every aspect of our life, we have certain attitudes that we project and that we want to affirm through other people. And when other people don't affirm that in us, we feel conflict, we feel pain, we feel struggle. But we have to understand that struggle comes from inside, psychologically. And that uh, if we resolve the conflict in our mind, the need to affirm our beliefs, but simply to be receptive to the flow of life in the instant, we learn to understand other people better. And that in turn creates greater uh, harmony in our relationships with others. And so in our relationships to others, we talk about what is known as the level of being. So we have a very uh, concrete uh, image we use to teach the nature and the relationship between knowledge and being. So we're talking about concepts, ideas, intellectual knowledge, which we store in our intellect, our mind. But likewise, we talk about the being, perception, cognizance, consciousness, understanding of what is real, the perception of our mind, our heart, our body in this instant. We find that two lines intersect in a given point, and that point is this moment. In Sufism, we talk about uh, the Arabic word waqt, which means the moment. And the Sufis uh, talk very extensively about this, but so, so do the Buddhists. And in Kabbalah, we find the same teaching about mindfulness. To be aware of our understanding of divinity here and now, and our presence. And that, in turn, develops and changes our relationships with others. So our, our habits and our ideas and our attitudes shape our life. Our mind shapes our life. What we are inside attracts the different and various circumstances of life outside. And so if we change the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act in relation to others, obviously the external world will change. But the problem is people want to hold on to their concepts about reality and they push it onto reality, expecting others will condone, uh, conform to their beliefs. And we find this in different uh, uh, countries throughout the world, such as in the Middle East, where they believe everyone should be Muslim. Or in America, we have more freedoms and people are free to agree to disagree. But there are tendencies in, in, in us and all human beings to want to affirm our beliefs and to have others conform to that. But if we change the way we think and we are uh, understanding of the idiosyncrasies of others, to be aware of the minds of others, likewise we change our uh, attitudes of uh, self toward, to generate towards compassion towards others, we then attract different circumstances of life. So we talk about the level of being. The quality of our mind determines the quality of our life. Acquiring things, materialism, goods, can satisfy us for a moment. But the genuine happiness of the spirit inside, the inner divinity inside, comes about by being present and being aware that we have divinity within us. Therefore, we have no need to fear economic problems. For as Jesus taught, see the lilies of the field, they toil not nor spin. See likewise the birds of the, and fowl of the air, they have need for raiment, and yet the Lord sustains them. How much more so you being made into uh, this present image shall you not receive the benefit of your Lord? That comes about as we learn to really connect with our divinity. We change our level of being. 
And so what is the level of being? It is our way of life, our thinking. And Samuel and Vior in his book, Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology, explains this. Nobody can deny the fact that there are different social levels. There are church-going people, people in brothels, farmers, businessmen, etc. In a like manner, there are different levels of being. Whatever we are internally, munificent or mean, generous or miserly, miserly, violent or peaceful, chaste or lustful, attracts the various circumstances of life. So in this image, we have two lines. The horizontal line is the line of life. On the left, we have our birth, our childhood, progressing to the right, towards school, education, work, family, career, friends, marriage, old age, sickness, death, progressing towards the end. This is a mechanical process in which we go through life, experiencing our economic issues, our daily issues, from birth to death. But this is a path that is not necessarily integral with the vertical line, as we find in this image. This vertical line is known as the line of being. This refers to the quality of our perception, the quality of our consciousness. There are superior levels of being and there are inferior levels of being. So a person who is a a drug addict or a prostitute, someone who dwells in bars or uh, is a criminal, like in the case of Milarepa, very low level being, meaning these people are usually in many people's eyes are inferior in society. They have a very, uh, a lot of suffering in their life. Their level of being is inferior because they're engaged in habits which are destructive. Above that, we have superior levels of being, which this is not, this is not to talk about social class specifically, but qualities of our mind, whether we have a generous heart, compassion, understanding, peace, love towards humanity. And likewise, this refers to the virtues of the being inside, which we develop as a result of working on the obstacles in our mind that prevent us from accessing that light. So the being and life intersect in this moment. And the way that we ascend to a superior level of being is precisely by learning to direct our attention. What are our thoughts? What are our feelings? What is our mood? To observe that. To have a sense of separation, not as a zombie-like state, a cataleptic state in which we are dull people, but to really live life intensely with profound awareness, insight, cognizance. This is the line of being, which we discriminate between what in us is real and what is false. Because all religions teach us that we we don't know the truth, we don't know divinity, and that we have created many obstacles inside, like our anger, pride, laziness, lust, defects, habits that are destructive, whether on a minor or severe degree. Obviously, in the case of Milarepa, when he was a criminal, it was very, very severe. He was uh, believed to have been practicing certain arts in, a, in esotericism, which are very negative. He was known as a, a witch or a sorcerer, somebody who knows how to use the mind to harm others. And he realized his mistake. He realized that he was harming others and himself as a result. And then he renounced his habits, 
and decided that he wanted to follow a path of virtue. And then he started to ascend the vertical path of being. So this indicates for us, really all the great saints of religion, were people who were just like us, or perhaps even worse. People who, who committed a lot of wrong, and then as a result, changed. They recognized that they were suffering, and that they made others suffer. And it's precisely when we recognize how in our daily life, in the moment, how do we make others happy, or how do we make others suffer, that makes us reflect inside, what is our level of being, and where do we want to ascend? Because moment by moment, we learn to ascend to a higher level of being as we develop our cognizance and awareness. So Buddhism teaches this fact very beautifully in the Dhammapada. It's a famous uh, Pali scripture of uh, Sutrayana Buddhism, the foundational level of Buddhism. So emphasizing my points, the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago, preceded by mind are phenomena, led by mind formed by mind. If with mind polluted one speaks or acts, then pain follows, as a wheel follows the draft ox's foot. Preceded by mind are phenomena, led by mind, formed by mind. If with mind pure one speaks or acts, then ease follows, as an ever-present shadow. So if we do good actions generating from our mind, we produce happiness in our relations. If we have anger or pride that affects others and makes others suffer. And the foundational teaching of Hinduism and any, really any religion is ahimsa, meaning nonviolence. So people think, oh, that just, just pertain to, such as Mahatma Gandhi's uh, uh, political movement against the British, ahimsa, not to fight violently physically. That's the basic level. But Gandhi, who knew this teaching very well, was uh, practicing ahimsa inside psychologically, to not think harmful thoughts, to not feel negative emotions, to not let his mind harm others. So this is nonviolence. This is really the definition of kindness, generosity. And this, begins to, this type of insight begins to develop in us genuine understanding about the nature of our problems on a very deep psychological level. This is what is known as comprehension. Comprehension is not the intellectual assertion or uh, understanding of a concept. Comprehension is something very profound and which we understand in a moment of epiphany, really, and all of us have had this experience, where we know that a certain type of action or belief is, is wrong and that we shouldn't engage in that habit or belief or idea or emotion. We know that something is really harmful for us, and so we stop, and then our life improves as a result. At a basic level, we could say that uh, a person who is an alcoholic who re- really realizes the damage of alcohol, comprehends how it's destructive, will never taste a drop of it again, knowing that that element will disorganize his or her psyche. But the difference between comprehension and knowledge uh, is that when we, even though we have intellectually have knowledge about something, it doesn't mean that we will act on it. In the instance of an alcoholic, may intellectually know has been taught alcohol is harmful, destructive, so is drugs, marijuana, barbiturates, different types of intoxicants that destroy the mind. We can know intellectually that it's wrong. We've been told it's wrong, but still we might do it. And uh, the difference between a person who really comprehends why certain behaviors are harmful is that they will never act on that again. 
when we really know in our heart that something is right or wrong, we will always follow that path and we will not digress. So Samael and Vior states, knowledge and comprehension are different. Knowledge is of the mind, comprehension is of the heart. So intellectually we may have a lot of ideas about why certain habits are, we should, we should cut eating too much junk food or, or uh, certain habits we should exercise more. We may know it's right, but we don't necessarily act on it on a very superficial level. The type of level that I'm seeking to address is something very psychological, very deep about the way we perceive life. Habits that we are not even aware of psychologically, which influence us. This is known as the subconsciousness or unconsciousness in Freudian psychology. When we comprehend what in us obstructs us from experience of reality, then we know in our heart what to do. And therefore we don't act on the whims of our desires or negativities. But instead we comprehend how to work inside of ourselves to integrate with divinity. So this is the teachings of uh, religion. Because religion in Latin means comes from the Latin religare, which means to reunite. Sanskrit yug for the word yoga means to reunite. It's the same meaning. So we seek to comprehend how to unite with divinity and to overcome uh, false concepts that we may have and to confront that inside. Now, when we talk about the type of knowledge, we, need to, we, we explain that we have certain knowledge in our mind, concepts about and beliefs about who we are psychologically, which may not be grounded in the facts. This is not to totally uh, throw away the use of knowledge. As you see here, we have many books uh, in which we teach many aspects of this science, which are good to read. We emphasize the need for study, to know what religion genuinely teaches, how to practice, how to meditate, how to transform one's mind. We need, we need uh, education to know how to do these things. But the type of knowledge we seek to abandon is false knowledge. Beliefs that aren't grounded in fact. Theories, ideas about uh, who we are as individuals, which uh, obstruct us from going deeper inside. So part of the teachings that I'm going to explain throughout the rest of this lecture come from Sufism. Uh, Sufism, if you don't know, is the mystical tradition of Islam, which uh, in its esoteric heart was a very beautiful tradition, which taught this science before it deviated, before it digressed or degenerated, as with any religion. This is a teaching from a Sufi master by the name of Hujwari. This is a book called Revelation of the Mystery, Kashf al-Mashub. He explains something very important that is, I find very useful. Knowledge is obligatory only insofar as is requisite for acting rightly. So the type of knowledge we need is the knowledge that's going to help us to change. That's really the most important knowledge. And having a vocational knowledge to help us, help us to live in this society, we need. But uh, as it continues, God condemns those who, use, who learn useless knowledge. From the Quran, uh, Surah 2, verse 96. And the prophet, Muhammad, said, I take refuge with thee from knowledge that profiteth not. So what is this type of knowledge that is, could be useless? 
we can think of many examples. And we only need to think about our own experience to think about what are certain things that we've read or studied that haven't necessarily been applicable to life, such as going to university. We learn many things that are useful and interesting, but do we use all of it? Honestly, most cases we, we, we won't. As it says in the scripture, much may be done by means of a little knowledge, and knowledge should not be separated from action. So what is the knowledge that we need? The knowledge to know how to act rightly. To know how to act from the presence of our divinity inside. Who knows right from wrong? Good from evil? It's a type of comprehension in our heart that tells us like a hunch we know what is right and wrong in a given instant. This is the meaning of uh, um, Jiminy Cricket in the story of Pinocchio. It's an initiatic story where Pinocchio is a wooden boy. He wants to become a real man, a boy, human being. Like us, we want to be made into the image of God, a real human, human being that reflects divinity completely. That's a genuine human being. We want to aspire to that. And so Jiminy Cricket is the voice of his conscience on his shoulder that says, don't do that. That's wrong. And of course, in the story, uh, it wasn't depicted in the Disney film, but in the, in the, in the novel by Carlos Conlodi, he explained that Pinocchio took a hammer and killed the cricket. And that's a, that explains in us how when we have a sense of what is right or wrong, we suppress it. We say, no, we justify it with our intellect. Well, we should, um, I, you know, I, I should drink more coffee because I need to stay awake, even though we know it's wrong. Or it's, uh, it could be a bad habit, as an example. We suppress that hunch and justify with our intellect why we should do something when we know it's wrong. This is the difference between knowledge and uh, comprehension. But in relation to this quote, we need knowledge that's going to teach us how to listen to that voice of Jiminy Cricket. So that's why we study the Bhagavad Gita, the scriptures, the Torah, the Zohar, to learn how to act rightly, to learn from masters, genuine spiritual teachers who have fully manifested divinity inside. The prophet said, and he explains here the nature of uh, individuals who study intellectually without having comprehension. The devotee without divinity is like a donkey turning a mill because the donkey goes round and round over its own tracks and never makes any advance. So a uh, donkey is a very interesting symbol, which if you know Pinocchio, Pinocchio was turned into a donkey. He was told by the blue fairy, symbol of his inner divinity, the feminine aspect of divinity known as Mar- the Virgin Mary, the divine goddess, Durga in Hinduism, tells him if you need to go to school, meaning go to esoteric school to learn how to change, learn useful knowledge to transform your mind, how to become a real human being. But Pinocchio is confronted by his friends. His friends come to says, we should go to the land of play, meaning we don't have to study and work, but we just play all day. And uh, of course, the Blue Fairy had warned Pinocchio before. Those who... Uh, play all day and never work, end up turning into donkeys. And a donkey is a symbol of an intel, uh, uh, really a, an intellectual, someone who has a lot of ideas in the mind but is still animal inside with a lot of anger, pride, vanity, lust, laziness, greed, defects. And the truth is, all religions teach that we are really like that donkey that needs to be tamed and uh, rode upon like Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem, meaning Christ inside us, our inner divinity, needs to ride our mind. The donkey is the mind. It's a stubborn animal which uh, can memorize information but doesn't necessarily know the truth. 
And so Rumi is a great uh, Sufi mystic, Sufi poet. He said specifically that uh, uh, an intellectual is like a donkey with a, lo- a load of holy books. I mean, the, the donkey has a lot of knowledge of scripture, but doesn't have the actual experience of what scripture teaches. But we're not saying that this type of knowledge is useless, but it has to be in balance with our practice. We need to study the scriptures, but we need to comprehend them more importantly. So this combination of our genuine comprehension of uh, tradition or religion with our study produces comprehension. So we talked about the line of life, or the vertical line, uh, horizontal line of life, and the vertical line of being. So we need to combine our intellectual study with the science of meditation to really comprehend Scripture, how it applies to our life. Otherwise, it's useless. We can know the scriptures, the Gospels by heart, the Quran by heart, the Bhagavad Gita by heart. But if, it, but if we continue to act in harmful ways or having anger inside, even at a subtle level, it means that this knowledge is not practical. We have to use what's practical in our life to change so that we can know divinity. So as Samael and Vyor states in The Great Rebellion, being and knowing must be balanced to establish a sudden blaze of comprehension within our psyche. When knowing is greater than being, it causes all kinds of intellectual confusion. If being is greater than knowing, it can produce cases as serious as that of a stupid saint. So if we have a lot of intellectual knowledge but no comprehension, no genuine realization of what the teachings present in religion, we can get confused. And this is what happens all over the world with people. They study religion for a long time, have a lot of faith in the tradition, but then they see contradictions in it and then feel dissatisfied. And then they, leave the, they get confused about their tradition, about their culture, and they decide to leave to another religion. And they hop like a butterfly to another tradition, another flower, and repeat the same habit, trying to find genuine insight, not understanding that the problem is not in the religion, it's in our mind, how we approach the religion. Because the different traditions teach us how to unite with divinity. So knowing without being is, can create confusion intellectually. But also, to, do, to have a lot of practice and spiritual discipline, but without study of what the different religions teach us, can, increase, uh, can create a case as, as serious as a stupid saint. And we find many uh, practitioners of yoga, and I'm and I specifically uh, not necessarily referring to the yoga studios in, in the West, but yogis who practice in the, in the, in the Far East, who are very dirty and very, you know, despite having the choice to live a life of, of some comfort, they decide to live sleeping on a bed of nails. Things which um, don't necessarily produce a lot of comprehension, just domination over the body, thinking that this is going to take them to God. So they may have certain practices or, tradition, or, belief, or certain uh, understandings about religion, but they don't study the tradition in which they are in. They don't study other religions. They don't have a... a profound culture or comprehension of the different faiths and how they relate. What comes to my mind in case of a, the stupid saint, there's a very famous uh, uh, Russian existentialist author. His name is uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky. He wrote uh, a book called The Idiot, specifically, which is the case of the stupid saint. And Dostoevsky, being famous in Western literature, people don't know that he knew this science and was warning certain practitioners of, of, or initiates, people with development, don't be like the case of this, this prince in the story 
Prince Mishkin, who is uh, very saintly and very holy. He has a lot, people really genuinely are, are attracted to his virtues, but he doesn't understand the 19th century Russian culture in which he lives in, and he's easily manipulated. He knows he's manipulated, but he allows it. And so, if he had a little bit of intellectual study and knowledge about how the way, the way cultures work and society works, he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't allow himself to be pulled in that direction. But he's really the, the fool. And if you know uh, about Egyptian mysticism, uh, the tarot of uh, the Egyptians, the Arcanum 21, the card of the fool, precisely the case of the stupid saint. So we need a balance. Knowledge with being. And so to continue on this point, we find, uh, again, the continuation of uh, scripture by Al-Hujwiri, Revelation of the Mystery, uh, specifying that uh, we, again, knowledge we need, the knowledge we study has to be practical, has to apply to our life. Otherwise, it won't have depth. Some regard knowledge as superior to action, while others put action first. But both parties are wrong. So again, what Samael and Vior stated was stated by the Sufis uh, centuries, uh, nine centuries ago. Unless action is combined with knowledge, it is not deserving of recompense. Prayer, for instance, is not really prayer unless performed with knowledge of the principles of purification and those which concern the Qibla. And the Qibla in, in Muslim tradition is the direction of uh, the niche and the wall uh, or the direction pointing to Mecca where the Muslims would pray. And for those who are not Muslim, really this pertains to how in us, in the West, we have to know what direction we are concentrating on in our practice, to, be, to know what is the object of our meditation, our, our, our discipline, and to not waver. But the symbol of the Muslims praying to the stone is a, has many Kabbalistic symbols, which we're not going to go into detail. But the fact that they pray to the East towards the rising of the sun really pertains to the worship of the Divinity, Allah, which is Christ. The solar logos in Greek, the sun. And the Qibla points to the holy city of Mecca, which is where they dedicate their prayers. And likewise, we have our own Qibla, in which we, when we sit to practice, we have an object of concentration to help us develop focused mind. And so uh, it is not really prayer unless performed with knowledge of the principles of purification and those which are concerned the Qibla and with knowledge of the nature of intention. So basically what I said about concentration, we have to know what we are intending. Every practice that we have in this tradition, whether uh, certain forms of yoga or mantra, meditation, has a specific purpose. So we have to know what intention we are working with with a certain exercise. Learning committed to memory are acts for which a man is rewarded in the next world. If he gained knowledge without action and acquisition on his part, he would get no reward. So, uh, we may read a lot, but if we're not aware of the real depth of what we're reading in application to our life, it's easily forgotten and is uh, therefore useless. Hence, two classes of men fall into error. Firstly, those who claim knowledge for the sake of public reputation but are unable to practice it, such as the Pharisees in Jesus' time who really knew a lot about Judaism but didn't practice. And therefore, when they saw Jesus as an example of the highest divinity who fully manifested that in himself, he produced a lot of hatred. Secondly, those who pretend that practice suffices and that knowledge is unnecessary. So there are people who believe that we have to study a lot, read a lot, 
and, no, and don't need to practice. And there are those who think that in religion, one has to do a lot of practices but not study. These are both wrong views. For instance, if you think of what comes to my, who comes to my mind is the 14th Dalai Lama. We respect him as a great master in this tradition. He's a very powerful being, really. Great master, Bodhisattva, who uh, really exemplifies the beauty of Tibetan Buddhism. He not only has a very profound scholarly knowledge, but his level of being is very high. It's evidenced by the way he interacts with others. He, generally, people see him. He's a very funny man, and he really connects to them from his being, from his inner Buddha. And so he emphasizes that one needs to study and practice. And in traditional, uh, excuse me, traditional um, uh, schools or colleges, which used to admit people in the past, would have students practice six hours a day and then study six hours a day. So dedicate their entire time in a monastery or mosque or ashram to fully develop intellectual knowledge and comprehension of that knowledge. This image is, uh, is Buddhist. This is a famous deity known as Manjushri, who in Buddhism uh, represents the balance of knowledge and being. In his right hand, he carries a sword. His left hand, a book. The sword tradi- traditionally represents being surrounded by fire, the penetrative insight of the consciousness of our being that cuts and uh, severs all ties to illusion. It is direct perception of what is real inside. The book represents scriptural knowledge. Or uh, the more accurate Buddhist terms we use is uh, wisdom and method. Wisdom, uh, if we break down the word etymologically, comes from the word vision, wisdom, the power to see. But this is not physical sight. It's spiritual sight, which is very deep. And so that the sword is surrounded by flames represents how the fire of, or energies of divinity, which is known as Christ and Gnosticism, strengthens our awareness to cut through illusion inside. And the book is our need to practice the methods, the teaching, to study the scriptures. So knowledge and being together is synthesized in Manjushri, great deity venerated by the Buddhists. And so likewise, we have to emphasize that knowledge is necessary, but not uh, for the sake of memory. And uh, also when we talk about knowledge, there are really two forms. And I'm going to explain this in relation to the Sufi scripture we've been commenting on. Revelation of the mystery. Knowledge is of two kinds. Divine and human. The latter is worthless in comparison with the former. Because God's knowledge is an attribute of himself, subsisting in him, whose attributes are infinite. Whereas our knowledge is an attribute of ourselves, subsisting in us, whose attributes are finite. This is very profound because in Sufism, or really the mystical teachings of Islam, where they say that when we know God directly, one, one, is, one acquires those attributes inside. The being has the, 
Allah or the being, our inner divinity, manifests in our psyche in order to, uh, for us to know him directly. And that knowledge of him is a quality of being, self-knowledge, genuine spiritual knowledge. In Hinduism, we call it Atmavidya, self-knowledge. But people, when they hear this, think self-realization, oh, it means the, self, the common self that I have. It doesn't mean that. To experience the superior self of divinity, we have to really lose, transcend all the type of knowledge we have of ourselves on an intellectual level. Because the knowledge of ourselves that we have, of our job, our culture, our language, our customs, our habits, our beliefs, our family, these things are terrestrial. They're finite. They have a limit, a beginning and an end on the line of, on the line of life. Our language is acquired at birth or uh, in childhood. And we lose our language and our customs and our culture when we enter the grave. And those of you who are familiar with reincarnation or the doctrine of uh, transmigration of souls in different bodies, uh, we teach in this science that we have methods to be aware of our past lives, to study where we come from. And so this, for, for me personally, this is not something I believe. It's something I know. Because I, I remember I've had experiences about my own past lives by doing certain practices in this tradition that have helped me to have insight to explain why I'm in the certain situation that I'm in. And so with reincarnation, one understands that, well, perhaps one was not in America, but in the Middle East, or a Buddhist. People have, I personally had the experience where I, in certain, certain of my past lives, one life I was Muslim, but I'm totally not from that tradition now. But I learned Arabic and I knew that tradition and culture in, the, in very ancient time but where is it gone? I memorized and I studied and I learned this, but I, it didn't keep with me because it wasn't part of my, my being. I didn't really awaken my consciousness at that point. And so being aware of it now, or being aware of, well, the things that we study, it makes me think, the things that we study in this life, if they're not comprehended and experienced, we forget them when we go to the grave. That's all part of the line of life. Real, genuine spiritual knowledge is the line of being. Atmavidya, self-knowledge, knowledge of Christ, of Allah, of Buddha, inside. Knowledge has been defined as comprehension and investigation of the object known. But the best definition of it is this, a quality whereby the ignorant are made wise. So this is talking about the genuine meaning of spiritual knowledge. It isn't uh, intellectual, but spiritual, from insight. It's a quality whereby the ignorant are made wise. So to be ignorant doesn't mean to not have book knowledge. We think of people as, such as in the country or people who are not part of the city as being ignorant. They don't study or read books. They're not cultured. But that's not the meaning of ignorance. To be ignorant is to lack gnosis. Ignorance. Ignosis. The I before uh, uh, ignorance negates gnosis, which means knowledge. The genuine type of knowledge we seek. To be ignorant is to have no understanding of who God is. And so all of us are ignorant to, that, to a degree. We all have ignorance and darkness in our mind that we haven't really experienced divinity. What is God? And so we are ignorant. doesn't mean that we may be cultured and intellectual, but uh, to be ignorant is to lack understanding of the genuine nature of reality. God's knowledge is that by which he knows all things existent and non-existent. He does not share it with man. It is not capable of division or severable from himself. 
Therefore, if we want to know what genuine spiritual knowledge is, we have to unite with our divinity. This is the meaning here. Because uh, it's not in books, but it's in our experience of divinity. Because that's a part of him and a her, masculine and feminine. The proof of it lies in the disposition of his actions, since action demands knowledge in the agent as an indispensable condition. This is very interesting if we know the Christian scriptures, especially the book of James, says faith without works is dead. We may believe in a tradition or faith, but if we don't have practice or action, it's dead faith. It's a dead religion. So therefore, action demands knowledge as the agent is indispensable. Action and knowledge, being and knowledge, have to be combined. The divine knowledge penetrates what is hidden and comprehends what is manifest. It behooves the seeker to contemplate God in every act, knowing that God sees him and all that he does. So in this teaching, we talk about observation, exercising spiritual perception, like a muscle. We show this image again to emphasize that it is precisely in this moment in which we learn to observe ourselves. To have the perspective like we are seeing ourselves for the first time. And in this teaching, we talk about, uh, there's a saying by the founder of this tradition, he says, the truth is the unknown from moment to moment. So there's always something that we need to be seeing new inside of ourselves and also outside. Alert novelty, clarity, when we sense and understand life in a new way. We've all had this where, when we were younger. We, in a moment with perhaps with family, we were present in the instant and we f- felt the joy of being alive. In a moment like that, there is clarity and we see life as if it is completely new. We didn't have our education or our ideas to project and to create problems and worry for us. Instead, we were living life in the present. Children have uh, access to that more than adults because they haven't developed what is known as personality yet, their custom or habits. And also, uh, this is why Jesus taught that one must become as like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven, to have an innocent mind, a mind that sees life in a new way in each instant. Usually we go through our home or our job mechanically. We don't really think about what we do. We just do it. It means that we're not, co- we're not really cognizant of what we're doing. So it's precisely in, from moment to moment that in this instant we learn to perceive life. And uh, we say that it is observing ourselves from the perspective that we are like, it's like we are watching a film. We try to see life in a new way each instant. When thoughts emerge, we, we, we really we have to learn how to separate psychologically from thought, from feeling, from sensation. We call this self-observation, meaning we are observing from the perspective of the consciousness. This consciousness is called soul in some religions. It's called uh, buddhata in Buddhism, essence of the Buddha. It is really our genuine spiritual nature, which can resolve all of our issues when we develop it. And likewise, uh, this superior state of being is not something devoid of necessarily of thought, feeling, or sensation. But it means that we comprehend what we are experiencing in this moment, not identifying with it, but instead identifying with God, the joy of God, who is being, who is presence, who is genuine faith 
love and compassion that is limitless. These are qualities of divinity that we learn to develop as we separate from what is negative in us and learn to comprehend how our soul is conditioned by these elements, such as anger or pride or vanity, as we were discussing. So we learn to observe this all in ourselves, to have the perspective that we are seeing ourselves as if we'd never seen ourselves before. Again, this refers to the beginning of our lecture, the need to see life in a new way, to understand that uh, the type of knowledge we seek is inside, that we need to learn how to reevaluate what is it we know. And so this watchfulness is known in different traditions and many, by many names. In Buddhism, it's called mindfulness. In this tradition, it's called self-observation. In Sufism, it's called uh, murakaba, vigilance, to be in vigil. If we learn to start observing ourselves, we find that we get distracted. We suddenly realize, wait, what happened a minute ago? Or if we examine our day, we find that there are moments or periods in which we don't remember what happened. We should really remember everything we do, even our, the thoughts or feelings or emotions we have in a given instant. And we find that there are gaps in our memory about what happened or what we said to a certain person. It means that we're not cognizant. It means that there are, there are gaps in our memory. And so to be in vigil is in different traditions. They sometimes do practices all night. They don't sleep physically. I'm not speaking about that specifically. To be in vigil is to be awake as a psyche. Because in the myth of psyche in Greek teachings, mythology, psyche is asleep. It needs to be awakened by eros, the force of love, the being. And so to remember divinity in this instant, is to be in vigil. It's also to be in prayer. To pray is to speak with divinity inside, to connect with divinity, with whatever words are natural to us. And so uh, a teaching from uh, a Sufi scripture, Al-Risala, is called Treaties of Sufism, states the following. There's a Sufi master by the name of Al-Wasati. The best act of worship is watchfulness of the moments. That is, that the servant not look beyond his limit, not contemplate anything other than his Lord, and not associate with anything other than his present moment. Meaning we have to stop thinking about where we're going to go or our, our daydreams, our job. If we're driving a car, let's drive our car. Let's not think about our family or spouse or other things, but be present when we're driving. Because really the reason why there's so many accidents is because people are asleep psychologically. They don't pay attention. They're not aware of what's going on inside. We do this all the time. We're not aware of ourselves. So the best prayer to divinity is to be aware, to be awake, and to not contemplate anything other than the presence of our divinity. And that's something we learn to develop and cultivate through uh, spiritual practices that we have in this tradition that we help us generate energy to strengthen our soul. In this image, speaking precisely about the the need to become a child, we have an image of the Virgin Mary holding the Christ child. So we need the mind of a child. It doesn't mean that we're stupid. It means that we have the qualities that are naturally spontaneous and generative in a child, which is love and fascination and a profound awareness of things. You see a child, they look at everything with amazement. And we've lost that. But that's something that we can regain inside as a spiritual quality. doesn't mean we become like infants, 
uh, physically, but, it, but really the meaning is, psychologically, we have a, a profound love for life in this instant. And so uh, we emphasize the following from the, our teacher in this tradition, Samael and Vior, in his book, Tarot and Kabbalah, about the need to become like a child. One has to change the process of reasoning for the quality of discernment. Discernment is this direct perception of the truth without the process of reasoning. Discernment is comprehension without the need of reasoning. We must change the process of reasoning for the beauty of comprehension. The mind must be completely transformed into an infant. It must be converted into a child full of beauty. So what is discernment? means to know something without having to think about it. We have a hunch, we know something is right or wrong. And then the intellect debates, well, I, sh- I should do this because, you know, and, and then we have many excuses and reasons in the mind. But first, that hunch comes like a lightning bolt, sparks in our heart. And then the thunder of the mind comes after us, well, we should, well, I had this reason, I need to do this or that. We need to learn how to discern what is objective in us. What is that lightning that we experience? And what is uh, reasoning? Because by this, we're not, we're not referring to the need to get rid of the intellect altogether. We need the intellect, but we have to understand its place. It's useful in its place when it serves our being. Knowledge that's in the service of our inner God is useful. But uh, knowledge, a mind that knows how to reason without the virtues of divinity, can, like a scientist can create atomic bombs, and more creative ways to kill other human beings. And people use their reasoning for evil things. We see this all over the world. And instead, we want to learn how to use our mind to uh, develop the virtues of divinity. So kind of synthesizing everything we've stated uh, with a following teaching by another Sufi master. People talk about heaven and hell in religion, in different traditions. The type of self-knowledge we're talking about requires the abandonment of our previous conceptions of self and to enter into a new experience of what, who we are as a, as a divinity and who is divinity inside of us. So in this image, we have what is known as Kabbalah, the tree of life. This is simply a map of being. It's a structure that shows us the nature of divinity in its different aspects. And it's not our intention to explain each aspect, but just to emphasize, this tree of life is precisely the burning bush that Moses saw as a symbol of divinity, the tree of being. This tree of life is inside. It's a map of our consciousness. And really represents for us heaven, superior ways of being, superior states. Hell for us is not a place, but a mental state. When we are gripped by anger, we suffer. We are in hell. When we are afraid, we're uncertain about our life, where we're going, what we're going to do economically to pay our rent, we suffer. That's hell. And so John Milton, the author of Paradise Lost, he stated the following. uh, The mind is its own place. It can create a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. And likewise, our mind determines our life. So we have this quote from a Sufi master, very beautifully and succinctly states, Wherever the delusion of your selfhood appears, there's hell. Wherever you aren't, that's heaven. It doesn't mean that we don't, it's a type of nihilism. 
but it, it's a negation of our inferior ways of being and the replacement for a superior way of being. To experience joy, we have to get rid of anger. We have to comprehend our psychological elements that make us suffer and to remove them in order to free the consciousness that is trapped inside, like the genie in Aladdin's lamp. So we need to remove our false conceptions of self because that's hell. The suffering that we have, terrestrial suffering and a, a daily experience, is a type of hell for us. But heaven is where we learn to, where we see that we are not necessarily a part of that as a soul and that we can escape that if we learn to pay attention. Following the theme of this lecture, we've been explaining a lot from Sufi doctrine. In this image, we have a very famous image of Prophet Muhammad, uh, who is riding, who uh, in this symbol is riding a mystical animal named Al-Burak. And uh, we understand from Gnosis that all religions are really precious pearls. They all express a divine teaching. And this is not a representation of the religions as they are today. But in the original root, these teachers came to found and explain the root science of how to liberate consciousness, how to free ourselves from suffering. So likewise, we explain also in many lectures how even Islam has a place in this tradition. Particularly uh, the symbol of Muhammad riding an animal to heaven, Al-Burak, the, the, the mytholo- mythological creature is represented by a, uh, the size of a mule with the face of a woman, tail of a peacock. Now, I know there are people who literally believe this happened, but this is a symbol. And we can explain it through teachings like Kabbalah, that this is really something applicable inside. Al-Burak means lightning. That lightning is the energy of divinity we call Christ which can take us up from here, this physical world, up the tree of life, as you saw in the Hebrew image. And so, uh, in his teaching, he explained how one can ascend from suffering to a superior level of being. And the Sufis really explain this very beautifully. I invite you to reflect. In general, it is to the measure of one's alienation from one's own ego that one attains direct knowledge of one's Lord. Meaning, heaven is where we are not, our, our defects. But heaven is when the soul is, uh, the mind is in peace and silence and can reflect the beauty of divinity inside, psychologically. I heard Abu Ali al-Lakak say, one of the tokens of the Gnosis of God is the achievement of deep awe and reverence for God. If someone's realization increases, his awe increases. So again, like a child. We look at life and we see that uh, we have awe, that, that spontaneous feeling of joy when we sit as we, we see a, a, a rain fall outside and the expression of a sense of peace and about the beauty of what we're experiencing while having to think about it or saying, oh, this is beautiful. We just simply relax and reflect on the nature of the sight that we're experiencing. That's a type of awe that we, can, that we experience at a superficial level, we could say. And at a deeper level, as we begin to experience what divinity is, we feel that awe of that tremendous power that is inside of us that can give us genuine happiness. If someone's realization increases, his awe increases. Meaning if someone's knowledge of divinity, genuine knowledge of what divinity is, increases, his uh, awe increases. Gnosis requires stillness of heart, just as learning requires outward quiet. If someone's gnosis increases, his tranquility increases. So we teach the science of meditation as the core practice. 
how to achieve mental silence, peace, so that we can know divinity directly. So as our knowledge of divinity increases, we have more peace in life, more joy, because we begin to remove what in us obstructs us from the goal. So this type of state requires that we uh, abandon false knowledge about ourselves. And of course, this is a very challenging thing to, to confront. But all religions teach the need to really confront the obstacles that are inside that prevent us from reaching divinity. All that is impure in us psychologically needs to die, as Jesus taught with his passion. Meaning, uh, he represented how any person on this spiritual path needs to remove the impurities. And that's precisely through his crucifixion. It's a very painful process, but one that transforms him radically. And this is something that he represented with his life. That's something we need to do inside. Not something to be believed in outside, but from practice. In this image, we have, again, some Sufis in prayer. And to emphasize what is the nature of being. I'm going to continue elaborating with two more quotes from uh, Treatise of Sufism, which is a Gnostic text. There is no finding the truth save after the extinction of the ordinary human condition. Because when the power of reality manifests, or the power of being, material thing, the perception of material things cannot endure. This is the meaning of the saying of Abul Hussein al-Nuri. For 20 years, I have been finding and losing. When I have found my Lord, I have lost my heart. And when I have found my heart, I have lost my Lord. What does that mean? If we identify with our self-will, we forget God. But if we remember God as a universal presence inside, one uh, forgets one's usual sense of individuality. So this is something that is fearful and frightening to the mind, because the mind does not know what is beyond itself. But this is a type of cognizance which is liberating, which we can develop through practice. And as we become associated and affiliated with what is the states of divinity inside, there is a sense of freedom and genuine happiness. Because that energy known as Allah or Christ or Buddha inside is eternal, never changes or dies. It is also the meaning of the saying of Junaid. The knowledge of unity is contrary to his existence. And its existence is contrary to the knowledge of it. So what is this knowledge of unity? Uh, we talk about how God is one. In Judaism we say, uh, Shema Yisrael Adonai Yod Chava Elohinu Yod Chava Echad. Basically in a, in a synagogue, when you pronounce this, it's basically the declaration of faith of Judaism. You cover your eyes, you say, Shema Yisrael Yod Chava Elohinu Yod Chava Echad. Meaning, Jehovah the Lord, Jehovah is one. Or the Muslims say, uh, La ilaha Allah, Allah, Muhammadun Rasul Allah. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. So this unity is a type of uh, integration of, with divinity. It's an intelligence that is uh, not uh, dispersed. So God, we say, is one, is a, sim- a singular force, which is one with the cosmos. So we want to seek to become one with that cosmic consciousness. So the knowledge of unity is contrary to his existence. Meaning, we have, we may have, in the beginning, we study, we have intellectual ideas about what this type of state of being is. And then later we come to experience it. 
first we study, then we, then we practice, and then we experience. This is really the gradual practice that we develop. And its existence is contrary to the knowledge of it. So again, if we have the knowledge about these teachings but don't experience them, well, we need to learn to experience them. Which is why we have different books that, that give different practices for that. So uh, the final quote here, we have an image of a, an Arabic calligraphy. In Arabic, it represents al-nur, meaning the light. It's a famous surah from the Quran, which says, light upon light. That light is our inner perception, our inner, our inner Lord inside. And uh, we all have that light of divinity within us, which we can actualize if we learn to practice it, exercise it. So the final quote we have here, which summarizes our points about the nature of being. The man of being possesses both sober balance and obliteration of self, meaning egotistical self. Sober balance means we're not... Uh, to, really, the teaching of not being drunk isn't something physical, to not drink alcohol, which is in Islam, they don't, Muslims don't drink alcohol at all. But the psychological meaning of it is that we're not intoxicated by false conceptions of self. But instead, we are obliterated with uh, that negative sense of self that we have is obliterated, and there's only the presence and joy of divinity inside. His state of sobriety is his continuing existence in the real. His state of obliteration is his annihilation in the real. So, heaven is where we aren't, but hell is where we are, our mistaken sense of self is. These two states always come upon him in succession. When sobriety in the real overcomes him, he acts and speaks in truth. Which is why certain masters who really united with divinity very fully, like Jesus, could say, I am the Christ, because Christ was manifest through him. Or certain Muslim prophets like... Uh, Mansur al-Halaj, famous Sufi poet, said, Anahu'l-Haq, meaning I am the truth. I mean, God spoke through him. And then the Muslims of the time had him tortured and mutilated because they were offended because that's the name of God. He says, you're God? Like Jesus said, I am the Christ. People don't understand that it's divinity inside that manifested within the terrestrial person. The being manifested in that individual. The Prophet reported from God Most High relating a non-Quranic divine utterance or hadith, Qudsi, Muslim oral tradition. So with me he hears and with me he sees. So in that profound state in which there is no uh, individual sense of self but there is only God inside is really the, the goal. So to conclude, we emphasize that uh, we need to balance our study with practice. We need to study the nature of being inside. What is our being? Who is our being? Who is our divinity? These are things that we become to understand as we reflect and observe our life, daily life. And uh, I'll open up the floor to questions. What, what daily practice do you have to grow that internal connection with divinity? The primary practice we use is meditation. We have many exercises also, such as mantra, which are sacred sounds. And by learning to work with the energies of our body and our mind and heart, we learn to activate spiritual perception. So uh, by working with sacred sounds, those sounds help to vibrate the different glands of our body, 
the activate what is known as chakras, the spiritual forces or circulation of energies which can awaken our consciousness. So we have many exercises with mantra, to, and, uh, such as uh, exercises called runes, a type of yoga postures, Tibetan yoga postures, meditation specifically, and uh, exercises called transmutation, where we uh, transform the energies of our body to consciousness. And so um, all the books that we sell have many practices to use. These are very practical books for uh, how to awaken that perception. And uh, you can find more information on our website as well for different individual practices. Comments or questions? Sure. Thank you. Not until I hear the word being, did that trigger something uh, very authentic, very accurate, whatever. Basically, it really helped. And I had not heard that before. So um, I'm placing high value on the language. So we say in this teaching, uh, particularly in the Revolution of the Dialectic, it's a book of this uh, from our founder of this tradition, he states that uh, Socrates demanded precision of his terminology. So we use many terms that are very specific and scientific. Uh, being is one of them. In Arabic, we call it wujud. Or uh, we simply say being, Buddha nature, to refer to our divinity inside. Um, but we have to understand that the being is uh, here and now, and that we can only access it if we learn to direct attention from a new perspective. You know, Question. Um, if you have those books there, if you're sort of a novice and trying to learn more, what books would you recommend to read? I'd recommend Revolutionary Psychology. This book uh, explains the foundation for uh, working with uh, consciousness and how we learn to uh, um, direct attention. So the teachings of self-observation or mindfulness are pertained uh, that we've discussed in brief are fully explained in that text. And um, it's a very strong and powerful teaching. Uh, I haven't found any other author who has been more explicit. We study in this tradition uh, many scriptures, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. And um, in terms of practical application, uh, these texts that we have available have been helpful uh, because they're very clear and very powerful and practical. So personally, I would advise uh, learning about self-observation, learning awareness about oneself, once you study revolutionary psychology, the book that you have in your hand. And uh, as an introductory text, it's uh, very practical. explains how to understand self, what is self, what is being, and what is divinity. Are these for sale? Can we buy them? They are. On the it's uh, 13 dollars. These are all on the website, right? Yes. So if there's something you want to look at more in depth, uh, you can look online. So if there are no more questions, uh, we'll conclude. Well, are you doing another lecture soon? Yes, we have a lecture in two weeks. So the lectures we have here are on uh, Wednesdays and uh, at 6 p.m. So same thing. Yes. I'm just picking up kind of where. 
Yes, so we're progressing uh, from uh, knowledge and being to uh, more studies in terms of psychology, in terms of uh, psychological teachings. So I thank you for, oh, question. Oh, I think I understand, you know, what you're saying. I think I understand why, you know, we want to study this. But why do I, if I really understand it, why do I sometimes feel the resistance to practice? That resistance is, uh, in psychological terms, we call it ego. Ego is Latin for I. And we say that we don't have one I, but many eyes. Pride is an I. Anger is an I. Lust is an I. It's a different defect, a different type of self. So there, as we begin to study this type of teaching and practice, we get resistance because the mind does not want to experience or does not want to change fundamentally. And this is precisely the, the great drama that any saint goes through, such as uh, you see like the, the temptation of St. Anthony and when she's surrounded by, in his image and artwork, of, by many demons. That demons are inside him. Those are his different defects that are, trying, that are fighting against him to uh, destroy his spiritual work. And so this is the meaning of the word Satan. This is a guy in a red suit with a pitchfork and horns. It refers to uh, Hebrew shaitan, which means adversary. So God, wa- we, God wants to develop something inside of us, but our own defects don't want to change. They want to hold on to their habits. So there's a big battle that we have to face. So the fact that you have resistance is normal. The next step is to develop understanding of what is that resistance so that you can overcome it. How do, we, how do I, I develop that so that I can overcome? Comprehension. You, oh. need, you need to develop, <laughs> observe. Like it says in the revolutionary psychology, you have a problem, you have a conflict or resistance in your mind, observe that in you. Observe what is inside. That's the key. If you, if you don't see it, you can't change it. If you see it, you can, you can transform it. So basically, we have meditation. Pre- meditation, and uh, this is—I'm uh, really happy for that question because people are, are afraid of what we call mystical death. They hear about the Buddhist annihilation, the death of the, the ego, and they, they get scared. What will I be after I, I die, as a mind? Meaning, the being will be there. And so, uh, study the book *Revolution of Dialectic*. Explains that, and we'll talk more in depth. But uh, thank you for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.